Amen. Well, welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am uh, one of the pastors here at The Grove, and uh, we have just finished the month of January through um, what is really is our vision for the year. And we just for five weeks meditated on and stared at uh, the Great Commission, this commission that Jesus gives his disciples after the resurrection, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 28. He tells all of his disciples this one mission, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. This is the commission that Jesus sends every single one of his disciples on. And so we looked and studied and prayed through what it was looked like then in our church and in our lives for us to go to make and to teach, to follow Jesus in that mission. And last week, we rounded that out in this call to this costly discipleship that Jesus has called us on to place him as the main priority and most valuable thing in our lives. We've seen the what of Christianity. We've now looked at the job description of our mission, go, make, and teach. But I don't know about you, if you've ever applied for a job and gotten a new job and they, they hand you a piece of paper that has the job description on it. And you read through it and, and you know all the things that you're supposed to do, but it kind of feels overwhelming. It's a new job. You haven't done it. You haven't seen it. Maybe it's an entirely new profession. And you don't know what it actually looks like in real life. So the next thing that most supervisors will do is, apart from just handing you a job description saying, good luck, they will then pair you with someone who's doing the job and have you shadow them. You think it's a walk around and see not just the what of your job, but the how of your job. Well, I was in um, a food service industry for years through my uh, undergrad, master's degrees, and even uh, beginning in pastoral ministry. I was a server, and uh, this is often what we do. The first number of shifts I would have, I'm just following around different servers, seeing, okay, they're really good at upselling and making sure everyone gets avocado on, uh, and on their plate and know that it's going to be an extra charge, and they always get an extra $1.29. They're great at upselling. This server is great at getting people to sign up for the rewards program. For whatever reason, they get millions of people to sign up for it. And this server is great at never messing up orders. And they would have you shadow these different people to learn the strengths of different ones to see not just the what of your job, but the how of your job. And so for five weeks, we've been looking at the what of this great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. What we're going to do now for the next nine weeks is walk through this series that we're just going to call Missional Profiles and shadow different biblical characters to see the way in which they fulfilled this commission to go, to make, and to teach, to see then the how of this, to see how it begins to play out in our lives. And so for nine weeks, we'll be walking through three different people who have done uh, each of these three different things, three people go, three people make, and three people to teach, and we'll be bouncing around every Sunday. So I think we've got a graphic with what we've got coming up for the next nine weeks. Maybe, maybe not. I may not have sent that. Um, that's, that, that will work. That isn't what I was thinking, but that is also great. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing for the next nine weeks from February to April. Now, after that, after Easter, then we're going to jump into the book of Jonah and walk for four weeks through the book of Jonah and kind of jump back into our regular rhythm of just teaching book by book, verse by verse, phrase by phrase through books of the Bible. So we'll spend four weeks going through Jonah as a great example of what not to do in living missionally. Then after that, we'll be looking uh, for 18 weeks in the book of First Timothy and then nine weeks in the book of Second Timothy to see this relationship that Paul had, this discipling relationship with Timothy, 
how he poured into this younger friend of his to raise him up and help him follow Jesus, and looking at those letters, again, as an example of living missionally. And that'll get us all the way then to Advent. So that's kind of our uh, plan for the rest of the year. Nine weeks will get us up to Easter as we shadow around biblical characters and missional profiles. And then after that, Jonah, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy. So that's where we're headed for the year. And we know now what to do. Go, make, and teach. But the question, again, the question is how do we do it? How do we get this thing going that Jesus has commissioned us to do? Go and make disciples of all nations. That's quite a mission. How can I be a part of a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? It feels overwhelming. It feels too large to be able to do as one person. Now, maybe there's ambitious people in here that would begin to dream about ways to reach the entire world. How then can we obey this commission? How can we reach to the ends of the earth? If you were to ask our American culture today how to make a huge impact like that, how can you get a message to the ends of the earth? What might be the strategy or the response to have that large of an impact? How can you create a worldwide impact? How might our culture answer that today? Well, they may say, well, the best way to do it is to try to get as many people as possible together. Get as big of a crowd as you can. Hold a rally, do whatever it is you need to do. Get big crowds. So if you're a church, be sure to, to get the maximal impact. You need to get as many people together to hear this message. And so be sure, do whatever you need to do to get more people in. Whatever strategy it might be, it's justified as long as more people are coming to be able to hear about Jesus. We need as many people as possible to hear professional communicators or professional musicians to be able to hear this gospel, and that's how we will reach the ends of the earth. We need more Billy Grahams and Billy Graham rallies to go around the world and reach the ends of the earth. We've got to attract big crowds. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is if you look at Jesus' ministry, he didn't neglect the crowds, but the emphasis of his ministry wasn't on the crowds. The emphasis of his ministry was on a few. It was on 12. And even within that, it was on three, Peter, James, and John. So maybe that's not a good strategy for us to adopt. Okay, well, maybe that's not good. Well, what if we get some celebrity influencers? That's what we need. We need some good TikTok videos to get this thing around the world. Let's make it viral. Let's get it going. That's what we need. We need this kind of innovation in which we bring in these influential people that the world already respects. And if Christianity can get some of these influential people, then we can have a worldwide impact because they can use their national and international platforms to lift up Jesus. That's what we need. And I see Christian communities do this all the time. We're really quick to grab a hold of the latest celebrity that might or might not have mentioned Jesus and be like, okay, he's now a Christian. Now we've got hope in our culture. We have somebody influential that said something about Jesus. We don't really know the depth of their faith or if they've truly turned to trust in Jesus. But now maybe there's a hope because we have this celebrity influencer. But what's the problem with that? Again, if you read through the Gospels, you read through the Bible... What you see over and over and over again is who God chooses to advance his mission. And what you'll find over and over again is it's not the people that you would choose. A man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. 
And so the nation of Israel chooses this king like Saul, who's big and impressive and who's great in battle and who can lead them into victory in the battlefield. And God says, nope, give me the shepherd boy named David that not even his own father chose. That's who I want. We see the 12 disciples. They were not impressive people. They were people that had been overlooked and passed up on by others. And Jesus says, those are the ones that I want. Again, in 2 Corinthians Paul says that he boasts in his weakness so that the strength of God may then be manifest through him. The only person that's kind of impressive in the gospel that comes to Jesus is this guy named Nicodemus. But Nicodemus, Jesus doesn't do everything he can to try to get Nicodemus on his team because then finally Jesus could have influence in Jerusalem. No, we don't even really know if Nicodemus turned to trust Jesus. So Jesus didn't choose celebrity influencers. So Maybe that's not the best idea. Well, then maybe you'll say, okay, well then what we need to do to really get this message out and around the world and make an impact is we've got to make sure that this message isn't so exclusive. Saying that Jesus is the only way, talking about uh, biblical ethics of gender and sexuality, this just, oh, this, this confronts our culture and it will make sure that we don't really have much of an influence if we hold up what it is God has designed and created and taught. We need to kind of maybe water down the message, leave out the offensive parts, and not be so exclusive. But friends, again, the problem with that is if you look at Jesus' ministry, over and over again, people came to him and said, hey, I want to follow you. And you know what Jesus' response was so often? It wasn't, hey, okay, yeah, don't worry about it. Let's not talk about it. Just come and follow me. It'll be okay. No, Jesus held the one thing in their life that they held to as an idol, that they loved more than anything else. And Jesus, as a master surgeon, pulled that out and said, hey, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to give that up. I have to be the most valuable thing in your life. Whether it was money for the rich young ruler, whether it was family relationships or comfort, over and over again, people came to Jesus and Jesus says, hey, you're not going to have a place to lay your head. You've got to leave your father and mother, your husband and your children. You have to be willing to die yourself to come and follow me. You've got to be able to renounce all of your possessions. Jesus says, hey, you've got to give it up to come and follow me. I heard David Platt say before, oh, if only Jesus had some of our modern evangelistic strategies, then maybe he could have had a successful ministry. But friends, maybe Jesus should be influencing our ministry. And maybe we need to continue to hold to him and lift him up as we follow him. So if that's not what we are to do, how then are we to get this message that we are following, this gospel that we believe, to the ends of the earth? What's the strategy? And the strategy may surprise us. And the strategy I want to, to hone in and focus on is we'll be looking at and shadowing today the Apostle Paul and again his friend Timothy. We're going to look at one verse and kind of pull out some principles from that. We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 this afternoon. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul has helped start this church in Ephesus, and Timothy is placed here as a pastor in Ephesus. Paul has a great relationship with Timothy. He's poured into Timothy uh, for most of his life. He's known him since he was young. And in 2 Timothy, this is the last letter that we have from Paul, actually. He was soon um, uh, martyred and beheaded uh, by Rome not long after this. So these are some of his final words as a father in the faith to the person that he had poured into. And as Paul's wanting to make sure this message that Jesus has entrusted to him 
has now been passed on to Timothy, Paul tells him what Timothy needs to do, what his focus and strategy should be. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul writes this, Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit then to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So a small verse, uh, but from it, I think we see three different things in how we are to go forward and teach. As we follow Paul here as an example of what it looks like to teach in following Jesus. Those three things I think we see is that we, every disciple, um, should be ready and always um, on guard to receive to replicate, and to repeat. I'm, I'm not going to say anything about the phone that's reading the Bible verse right now because I don't want to highlight or single anybody out, but I'm, it, was, uh, it was great. Okay, but coming back, <laughs> 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, here's what you need to do. Every disciple should be ready to receive, to replicate, to repeat. To receive, to replicate, to repeat. This, um, this methodology of replication, this slow, intentional, faithful replication. That's the strategy. Not as many people as we can get, not the most prominent people, not watering down the message, no, taking the truth that we've received, slowly, intentionally, faithfully, passing it on to others that will go and do the same. You may say, well, Caleb, that doesn't seem like a very good strategy. That may not seem like it's going to be able to reach many people. Well, I want to give, uh, tell this a story. It's, a, it's a, an Indian fable, um, and it, it highlights what I think the, is the principle behind slow, intentional, and faithful replication. The fable goes like this, that long ago in India, there lived a Raja who believed that he was wise and fair, as every Raja should be. The people in his province were rice farmers. One day, the Raja decreed that at the end of the harvest, every farmer should eat the rice that they needed to live and bring any excess to him so that he could store it up just in case there was ever a famine. And so during that time, each year, the Raja's rice collectors gathered nearly all the people's rice and carried away to the royal storehouses. Now, for many years, the rice grew well. People had what they needed, gave everything else to the Raja, and the storehouses were abounding in rice. They were always full. And the people were left with only enough rice to get by. But then one year, the rice grew badly, and there was famine and hunger. The people had no rice to give the Raja, and they had no rice to eat. Now, the Raja's ministers implored him, Your Highness, let's open up the royal storehouses and give to the people what it is that they need, just as you'd promised. No, cried the Raja. How do I know how long the famine will last? I must have the rice for myself. Promise or no promise, a Raja must not go hungry. A time went on, and the people grew more and more hungry. But the Raja wouldn't give out any rice. And one day, the Raja ordered a feast for himself and his court, because as it seemed to him, a Raja should be able to celebrate, famine or not. And a servant then led an elephant from the royal storehouse to the palace, carrying two full baskets of rice. And a village girl named Rainy saw that a trickle of rice was falling from one of the baskets. Now quickly, she jumped up and walked along beside the elephant, catching the falling rice in her skirt. And she was clever, and she began to make a plan. At the palace, a, a guard saw her and cried out, Halt! Thief! Where are you going with that rice? Rainy replied, I'm not a thief. 
This rice fell from one of the baskets, and I'm returning it now to the Raja. And when the Raja heard about Rainy's good deed, he asked his ministers to bring her before him. I wish to reward you for returning what belongs to me, the Raja said to Rainy. Ask me for anything, and you'll have it. Your Highness, said Rainy, I, I don't deserve any reward at all, but if you wish, just give me a single grain of rice. Only one grain of rice, the Raja exclaimed. Surely you'll allow me to reward you more plentifully, as a Raja should. Very well, said Rainy. If it pleased your highness, you may reward me in this way. Today you'll give me a single grain of rice, and then for 30 days you'll give me double the rice that you gave me the day before. Thus tomorrow you'll give me two grains of rice, the next day four grains of rice, and on and on until day 30. This seems like a modest reward, said the Raja, but you shall have it. And Rainy was presented with a single grain of rice. The next day, Rainy was presented with two grains of rice. Following day, four grains of rice. On the ninth day, she was presented with 256 grains of rice. She'd received in all about 511 grains of rice. It was enough for only a small handful, about a third of the way through the agreement. That's how much rice she had. This girl is honest, said the Raja, but not very clever. She would have gained more rice by keeping what just fell into her skirt. On the twelfth day, Rainy received 2,048 grains of rice, about four handfuls. On the thirteenth day, 4,096 grains of rice, enough to fill a bowl. On the sixteenth day, she was presented with a bag containing 32,768 grains of rice. Altogether, she had enough rice for two bags. Well, this doubling up adds a bit more rice than I expected, thought the Raja. But surely her reward won't amount to much more. On the 21st day, she would re receive 1,048,576 grains of rice, enough to fill a basket. On the 27th day, 32 Brahma bulls were needed to deliver 64 baskets of rice. The Raja was now deeply troubled. One grain of rice has grown very great indeed, he thought, but I shall fulfill the reward to the end as a Raja should. And on the 30th and final day, 256 elephants crossed the province carrying the contents of the last four royal storehouses, 536,870,912 grains of rice. Altogether, Rainy received more than a billion grains of rice, and the Raja had no more rice to give. He said, what are you going to do now with all this rice, now that I have none? Rainy said, well, I'll give it to all the hungry people, and I'll leave a basket of rice for you if you promise from now on only to take as much rice as you need. I promise, said the Raja. And for the rest of his days, the Raja, Raja was truly wise and fair, as a Raja should be. Now here's the principle from the story. The principle is that it may seem modest at first, and it may even seem unproductive for a while, but committed replication over a long period of time will eventually empty the royal storehouses. This is the exact same principle in financial planning as compound interest. Slow, intentional, faithful replication. Friends, that's the approach not only that Rainey had, it's the approach that Jesus had and his philosophy of ministry that he used. Jesus could have gotten crowds together. He could have gotten a huge amount of people on a hillside to teach, but instead he focused his time on 12 faithful men. Jesus said, give me 12 men filled with my spirit, and I'll turn the world upside down. It's the same philosophy that Paul used here with Timothy. And friends, it should be ours as well. 
to be able to take that which we have heard and commit to faithful men and women who will continue to do it also. To not just be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And also not only to just make disciples, but to make disciples and then teach them to go and make more disciples. The call is for us to be disciples and then make other disciple-making disciples. To be committed to slow, intentional, and faithful growth. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. That that which I've committed to you will replicate and multiply. And so this is the three principles that we see Paul here give to Timothy. To receive, to replicate, and to repeat. All right, so look at 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul says, first, you've got to receive. Uh, he says, what you have heard from me. Paul says, you, Timothy, you have heard something from me. You have received something from me. You didn't create it on your own, but you received it. It's the same thing Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3. He says, I want to make it clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you, which you received... They received the gospel from Paul. He says, listen, for I pass on to you as most important what I also received. So Paul sees himself as a recipient of the gospel and then a passer on of the gospel. He both received it and then passed it on. He said, this is what we all have to do. We are receiving. We are hearing we are learning that, friends, intrinsic in being a disciple and following Jesus is this component of learning, of receiving, of hearing. If we ever disconnect ourselves from him, from Jesus, from learning, we will eventually dry up. This was Peter's prayer at the end of 2 Peter, verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Peter writes this, Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you're not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. Peter's worried about people who are going to come and try to deceive the church. So what is Peter's solution in verse 18? He says, listen, my prayer is that you would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter says, I want you to grow in your knowledge of who Jesus is, to grow in your knowledge of who God is, to be receiving, to hear, to learn, to grow. And friends, there is a, a tendency, I think, within the modern evangelical church to emphasize this growing in grace and love and affection and worship and praise of God. And sometimes we can neglect learning. Oh, words like doctrine and theology, those are so dry and heady. It'll lead to a, a dead faith. And so sometimes we kind of neglect those. We want to worship God and who we think he is, this God that we have in our minds. Well, friends, is the God in our minds truly the God of the Bible, as he has revealed himself to be? As Jen Wilkin put it well, that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And friends, if we want to love God, we have to know who it is we love. Right? We're coming up on Valentine's Day, and in Valentine's Day, you know, there's the card exchange in classes in elementary school, middle school, High school, you write Valentine's Day cards, you swap them. 
And so maybe you're, you're, you're thinking this is your chance coming up this Valentine's Day. You've got a crush. You're like, I'm going to write a love letter to the person that I've had my eye on, and this is going to be it. I'm going to write them a Valentine's Day card, and you pull it out. You write this beautiful love note of how much you love this girl's beautiful blonde hair and the way her blue eyes sparkle and glisten in the sunlight and that you continue with other uh, romantic uh, hithers and thithers, and then you sign it sincerely, XOXO, my name, and you go and you give it to her, and she reads it, and she kind of pulls back a little bit. Because as she reads it, she goes, I, I have brown hair and brown eyes. Who is this guy talking about? And actually, with not knowing who she is, it's actually repulsive for her. And friends, I worry that for many Christians in the church today, we love and worship a God that isn't actually who God is. And when we come to him saying that we believe him to be certain ways, friends, I worry that our worship actually repulses him because he goes, that is not who I am. Friends, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Notice then as we are learning and hearing, we are receiving this. We're not creating it or writing it. It's nothing new, right? If you hear something new at church, that's called a heresy. We've got nothing new to offer here. Uh, we want to be originally unoriginal. We want to be creatively uncreative, taking the message that was passed down from Jesus himself and presenting it to our context today. We have received it. We didn't make it. We didn't author it. Paul says the first understanding as in this process is that we have to be receiving. We have to be learning. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, here's then the next part of the strategy. It's not just, Timothy, what you heard from me. You then now have to commit it to faithful men. So both receive and then replicate. That which you heard from me, pass it on to others. What I have passed to you, replicate it in the lives of others. What you have received from me should be replicated in others. Paul is saying that which has then been given to you should flow through you into the lives of the people around you. You're not just a storehouse uh, storing it up. Right? I'm minded of, reminded of bodies of water, I think, illustrate this well. And bear with me, I'll get to why in just a second. Uh, a couple years ago, Leah and I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And we saw the Dead Sea down at the very bottom of the Jordan River. Dead Sea is this um, world-renowned, famous sea for a number of reasons. Uh, one thing I didn't know until we got there, actually, is that the Dead Sea is the lowest land elevation in the entire world. There's no place lower than the Dead Sea on land. So one of the things that means then is that everything that feeds into the Dead Sea then terminates in the Dead Sea. There are no rivers or streams that flow out of it because rivers don't flow uphill. That's not how gravity works. And so everything collects in the bottom of the Dead Sea. And so because of that, then, as the water evaporates, all the salt and the minerals stay then there in this lake. And because of that, it has a salt percentage of 34.2%. Now, to give some context, ocean water has an average salt weight of 3.1 to 3.8%. The Dead Sea is roughly 10 times saltier than the ocean. What that means, if you go and sit in it, you feel like you're about to shoot you up out of the water again. You float to the very top. It is so dense. They told us to be sure when you get in, don't drink any of it because one cup would send you to the hospital. Two cups will mummify and kill you. So don't drink water in the Dead Sea. It's so salty. And so this is because everything's flowing into it. And because of this saltiness, it's an environment where plants and animals can't flourish. Nothing lives there. It's, it's uninhabitable, hence the name, the Dead Sea. Everything dies that tries to live there, hence the name. Everything 
pulls in and collects in this body of water. Now, to contrast that, if you look at a river, it's far different from the Dead Sea. In particular, look at the Mississippi River, the, the mighty Mississippi here in the United States. It's the second longest river in North America. Flows through 32 different states and two Canadian provinces. Along its path, cities and civilization have come to life because using the ability to use it as a means for transportation, for communication, for delivery, or farming because of its fertile riverbanks. Mississippi River and the Mississippi Embayment is actually some of the most fertile land in all of the United States. It's also used pragmatically to be able to separate states with borders. It flows, carries, and moves what it receives on to others. Without this river, I think it's safe to say our country wouldn't be what it is today. I don't think that's a hyperbole. It was necessary to the life of this country. This river always was flowing, carrying, and moving. The Dead Sea collects. The Mississippi River connects. One is a reservoir. The other is a conduit. Friends, I see a lot of Christians that act like the Dead Sea, always receiving, but never replicating. Reading books, studying their Bibles, listening to podcasts, arguing on Twitter and Facebook with all the correct information, and yet they aren't meaning, meaningfully connected to a local church community. They aren't passing on what they are receiving to others. It's just collecting in them. It's pooling within them. And it has as dangerous a result as the Dead Sea. Because as Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And friends, we are meant to be Mississippi River Christians. We are supposed to be carrying to others what we have received. As we flow to others what has been given to us, it leads to the flourishing of people around us. Places and cities along the Mississippi River grew because of the life that the river brought. And friends, for us as Christians, we are to be connected to the source, right? If the source cut off in the Mississippi, the lake somewhere up in Iowa or wherever it is, it's somewhere up there. If that lake gets cut off, the Mississippi River dries up. It has to be connected to the source. And friends, for us, we have to connect to the source. We have to abide in Jesus, connecting ourselves to the vine. But then as Jesus then flows life into us, as we are learning and receiving then are people around us flourishing as his life flows through us to those around us? Or do people around us struggle? Are people marked? Do people look at you and remark how you are marked by patience, love, joy, peace, kindness, the very fruit of Jesus' spirit himself in you? Or are you marked by something else? Do you lead to the flourishing of people around you? That's what we are called to be, to not just be receiving, but replicating, flowing God's grace then through us into the lives of others, always passing on what has been given to us, whether it's in a sermon, whether it's in a Bible story you read this morning, whether it's in a book that you glanced at, an article that you read, a song that you heard, or a conversation you had with someone at community group. However God is working and teaching you in your life, are you then passing it on to others? Or is it storing up in you? Paul says, be sure to receive, but also be sure to replicate. What you've heard from me, pass on and commit to faithful men. And third, he tells him to repeat. To not just then pass it on to faithful men, and that's the end of the transaction. 
but to pass on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul says, go and give then, Timothy, to faithful men who then will continue to replicate one by one this slow, intentional, faithful um, ministry of following Jesus. Find men who will then be able to teach others also. There is an expectation that disciples will make disciples. Discipleship never terminates on itself. It is a conduit of grace, not a reservoir. J.T. English, a pastor in Arizona, an author of a great new book called Deep Discipleship, puts it this way. He says, quote, There is no such thing as a disciple of Christ who is not making other disciples of Christ. There is no such thing as a disciple of Jesus who is not making other disciples of Jesus. Disciples make disciples. Paul then tells Timothy, what you've heard from me, commit to faithful men. And those faithful men, make sure they then will teach others also. Why? Because disciples make disciples. So here's a practical question to ask yourself often to make sure we're following this model that Jesus and Paul and Timothy have laid out. Ask yourself this question. What are you learning and whom are you teaching what you are learning? What are you learning and whom are you teaching what you are learning? The expectation is that we will be learning something. We should be learning from somewhere, whether it's, again, in church, as we read and study the Bible, whatever it might be. What are you learning? But then secondly, whom are you teaching what you are learning? How is it God then using that to pass through into the lives of people around you? This question expects that you're learning something, that you're receiving something, and it also assumes that you then should be replicating it into someone else. And so, friends, it can be hard to just start up relationships that are like this, whether it be because of schedules, calendars, uh, modern expectations for relationships or whatever else. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we've kind of put together this structure here in our church of these D groups in which we're saying, hey, get together groups of three to five people in the same gender, work through, commit for 18 months to read the Bible so that you then are learning and receiving from God himself. There's no better teacher than God through his word. And so for you to begin to learn and wrestle and receive then from God, but then there's now this community of three to five where you then go to share and commit to others what it is God is teaching you. It doesn't just terminate with you, that learning happens best in community. And so we want to be having these D groups as we are studying ourselves the scriptures and giving the largest portion of our time in those weekly meetings to do just that, to pass on to others what God is teaching you, to disciple one another. So it's not just one person who is the, the Raja here at the church who's teaching everyone, but we then are doing what the New Testament describes in uh, the local church, to minister and love and disciple one another. There'll be things that you will learn from someone else and things that then someone else will teach you. And then our ultimate hope of these D groups isn't simply they'll just meet for a while and then stop, but that when they finish, they will then replicate. That they will then go and continue to spread slowly, intentionally, and faithfully. And so again, those are starting this week. There's still people, we had um, a lot of people sign up last week. You can still sign up this week. If you've got a group, you can go and sign up afterwards. If you don't have a group already formed and you go, hey, I'd like to be in something like that, you can still sign up for that and we'll work on getting you connected with somebody. 
we've got these little uh, field guides that have come in. Um, we're just calling Go Make Teach, a disciple-making field guide. And in it, it's got our Bible reading plan. It's got uh, tips on being able to study the Bible, uh, to show you how to be able to journal through the scriptures, sample journal journals as you go through them, uh, what your time should look like when you meet. Everything that you'll need in a D group is going to be found within here. And so those are at the Connect table. If you signed up last week, go and grab those one after the service. Again, if you want to be a part of these D groups, then you can go and sign up and grab one of these uh, today also. So that'll be out of the Connect table afterwards. And again, our hope when these e end is that they will replicate and not simply that they will just terminate. And so we did have a great response from people who signed up last week, but the mark of success for us was never the number of people signing up, but the faithfulness of those that did. And so we had 12 groups sign up last week, but, and I was incredibly encouraged by the response of people saying, hey, I want to commit every week, and I want to read through the Bible. That is only encouraging for me as a pastor. But I will also say that had one group signed up of four people, of three people, and that group then met for 18 months, read through the entire Bible, friends, that is also a huge mark of success for me as a pastor. Why? Because I look at what Jesus did. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he didn't have huge crowds with him. And the fact is he was on the cross, he had one of his disciples and a number of women that were around with him. Everyone else had left him. But Jesus knew, slow, intentional, faithful, a number of people that had really caught on then would be able to go and turn the world upside down. And so even if we had one group of three that met for two years, after those two years, it could then replicate into three new groups of three. And after another two years, each of those groups replicate into three new groups and so on and so forth. After 10 years, you know the reach one group of three can have if it replicates. And year one to two, we'll have uh, one group. And years three to four, we'll have three groups. Years five to six, there'll be nine groups. Years seven to eight, 27 groups. And then in years nine to 10, 81 groups. That's 243 people that have been walked faithfully through the Bible, reading and meeting together with one another for community, Bible reading, accountability, and prayer. In just 10 years. Now, I know that's idealistic, but I hope you catch the power of what we see when we follow this philosophy that Paul and Timothy modeled. That these teaching and discipling relationships we hope to see established here aren't meant to terminate. They're meant to replicate and repeat. We're aiming at faithful, intentional, slow replication. That's the typical pace of the kingdom of God. Now, there are exceptions to that. Right? You have Moses delivering an entire country from Egypt and then bringing them out of slavery. You have Acts 2 where Pentecost happens and thousands are added to the church. There are exceptions, but friends, that is not the norm. That's not the typical pace of God's kingdom. Read the Bible and you'll look at how God typically works. It's often slow. It's regularly overlooked. And it is seemingly ineffective. Right? Just look again at the men that Jesus chose. They were the ones that got overlooked. Not only overlooked in their lives, but they then also were the ones that abandoned Jesus whenever he needed them the most. And if you look at Jesus' life on the surface, it looked like a failed ministry. Right? Even, you know, there was 40 days after the resurrection, things were starting to turn a little bit, but Peter had gone back to fishing after the resurrection. He was like, man, Jesus didn't want to use me. There's no way. I failed him. I'm going back to my trade. I'm going to go back to fish again. 
disciples were locked in a room afraid even after they'd seen the resurrected Jesus. There was still starting to turn, but it still didn't look great. His ministry, Jesus' ministry, God's ministry on earth to save sinners and bring about people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him, it seemed terrifically inefficient and lacked any immediate results. Well, so it is with the kingdom of God. And so it is often with the ministry within that kingdom. It is often slow. It is regularly overlooked. And it is seemingly ineffective and inefficient. Now, I, I, it's not unlikely for me to have conversations with people, right? particularly as we see some of the barriers, what we feel like maybe into ministry, where people may feel like, oh, this is keeping me from ministry. Maybe this is keeping me from ministry. And one thing is something that's as old as even within the Bible. Right? There's a story of these children that were coming up to Jesus as Jesus was in the middle of his public ministry. And these children, these toddlers, we'll say, were running up to Jesus. They probably had sticky fingers, had just had some fruit snacks, and just got done watching Sophia the First. And they're coming to tell Jesus all about Sophia the First, probably. And his disciples are sitting there saying, hey, get these kids away. Right? We've got real ministry to do. Right? Jesus has got to get his following grown. We've got to get his platform going up. We've got to get a blue check mark on Twitter. We've got to get this thing rolling so that we can then raise up a coup to overthrow the Roman occupation, get the kids away so that we can focus on real ministry. Friends, it's not, again, unlikely for me to have a conversation not dissimilar from that, which people may feel, uh, you know, I want to be involved with the ministry of the church, with ministry that God has for me. I just can't really right now with what it is my young family requires. It's exhausting. It's time-consuming. And I can't really get involved in ministry because I've got to give so much attention to my family. And you know what my response is to that? I hope it's the same as Jesus's. That your family isn't keeping you from ministry. Your family is the ministry. When Jesus corrected his disciples and the people around him, he didn't correct the time-consuming children. He corrected the results-driven disciples. He said, no, 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 let the children come. And he paused his effectiveness. And it seemed to be slow. It was often overlooked. And it was seemingly inefficient. Friends, if you're a, a mom or a dad, and maybe you feel like um, uh, your children are maybe keeping you from ministry. Oh, there's more I'd want to be able to do, uh, but I've just got to... Uh, you know, the time-consuming nature of my young family. I just can't get involved like I wish I could. I want to do ministry. Well, let me just encourage you that, to see your children the way that Jesus does, that your children are not keeping you from ministry. They are ministry. And you devote yourself to 18 years of pouring your life out for raising up this one human individual. It will be slow. Uh, most of your choices will be overlooked. And it may seem incredibly inefficient. But friends, you are just following in the footsteps of your Messiah. And so it is with the kingdom of God. Continue to press forward and see that this is the nature often of God's kingdom work. So if in those moments where you see you come home from work, dads, and you are tired, and your kids come up, and they want to go run and play outside, and you're just exhausted. Don't see that as an opportunity in which it's just, oh, this is just, uh, I, I don't have the energy to step into it but see it as an opportunity for ministry to be able to reflect the joy that can be found in a relationship with their heavenly father. When your kids continue to fail, continue to disobey, 
continue to do the opposite of what it is that you told them to do. Maybe even they didn't think about doing something wrong until you told them not to do something, and then they went and did that thing. And you just begin to get frustrated over disobedience. See then in those moments of interaction that you have an opportunity for ministry to be able to display, yes, truth, but also the grace in which God displays to us in our constant failing. Whenever you go and you then are just tired of the same question over and over again, maybe your kid just keeps bringing back the same thing to your attention. It's like, listen, I've answered that eight times already. Why is this question still being asked? And there's the tendency to be frustrated in that moment. See that not as a moment of frustration, but an opportunity for ministry in which you can reflect the patience that God shows you when you keep bringing the same things to him. That in these moments, these seemingly mundane and frustrating moments, 18 years in the life of a parent, don't see them as opportunities of frustrations that impede on your convenience and your comfort, but see them as opportunity for slow, intentional, and faithful ministry. They, your life is filled more than anything else with opportunities for ministry. And you may say, but I don't see the results, right? That's great, Caleb. That sounds all great that you're saying things like that, but I don't, there's no like actual change, I'm not really seeing uh, the results from it. Well, that's part of the problem, I think, with us as humans, A, especially as Americans. We want to see the results. Right? I want to get, we need those microwave results. We need to see it quickly. But friends, again, we're just encouraged to see the philosophy of Jesus and with Paul and Timothy. These mini, you may say these ministry opportunities don't seem to have much of an impact. Well, just look again at Jesus' ministry. Jesus devoted his life to these 12 men. Three years gave, gave him all this time. They got to hear the best sermons ever preached. They got to see miracles. They got to see guys walking on water, dead people raised to life, uh, hungry crowds fed from one lunch. And in all of it, towards the end of it, you know what his disciples are saying? They're arguing over who's going to have a better seat in heaven. It didn't land with them. They didn't get it. And friends, if they didn't get it hearing Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised if sometimes it's difficult and it seems to be uh, ineffective in our own lives as well with our children, that it's going to be long. It will often be slow. It will regularly be overlooked, and it will be seemingly inefficient. But we see that this is the ministry that Jesus has called us to in our families, within our church, and in our own lives. Again, the book that I referenced last week from Eugene Peterson, I love the name. Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. It's not quick. It's not in a hurry. It's long. It is often slow. It is regularly overlooked and it is seemingly inefficient as we are then called to go and teach, but to teach this way, to always be receiving, to always then be replicating, and to always be repeating. Friends, in following this man, Jesus, we also follow his methods as we participate in his mission. Don't lose heart, but let's strive to imitate Paul and Timothy as they imitated Jesus, to receive, to replicate, and to repeat. Let's pray. God, we are, again, amazed that you would save us. And we continue to be amazed that you would then send us to go and to teach. God, help us follow not just the, uh, the mission that you've called us to, but the methods in which you participate in it. God, help us to take hold and let this drive deep into our hearts, to always be hearing, to always be committing, and then always be expecting it to multiply and repeat. God, to receive, to replicate, and to repeat. God, give us perseverance and give us a perspective to not overestimate what we can do in a year and to not underestimate what you can do in 30.
God, for us to follow you slowly, intentionally, relationally as we follow Jesus. And God, we need your help to be able to do it. So would you always remind us then of that hope that we have in you, that you are here with us, and help us to always lean and rely on your strength. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.